Because if the world divides us into those who are suffering at this moment and those who sit outside the suffering, there is a much more significant division and it all hangs on how you respond to Jesus. Well, let's look at uh, each of these encounters, encounters with Jesus briefly. First, the two women. The stories of the two women are interlaced, as Matthew tells them. But the other Gospels give us more detail and make the connection even more obvious. The little girl, uh, the ruler's daughter, we're told in Mark's Gospel, was 12 years old. The woman who had been suffering this hemorrhage had been suffering it for 12 years. The ruler's daughter had been taken away by death, separated from those who loved her. So too, the woman's chronic condition had separated her from the rest of the community. It made her unclean. She could not worship in the temple. If she was married, it would have put a great deal of strain on her marriage, not just months, but 12 years. She would have been weak and drained and traumatised by it all. Mark tells us she'd gone from one physician to another and she'd suffered greatly as a result and she'd poured everything she had into seeking a cure but found nothing and now she had nothing. By rights, Jesus should have steered clear of both of these situations. To go anywhere near a dead person could make you legally and ritually unclean. To go near blood, human blood, would do the same. But look at what Jesus does. The distressed man came to him. The end had only just come. The wound was still very, very raw. And he came to Jesus. How he knew what he knew, we do not know. Sure, Jesus had healed the leprous, the paralysed, the feverish, the demon-possessed. But death was something else. This was, this is, the insuperable barrier. And yet this man, this ruler, this leader in the local synagogue came to Jesus. Even now, even now, if you come and put your hand upon her, she will live. It's an extraordinary thing to say. She is dead. But even now, what an astonishing confidence in Jesus and his power against all odds. And did you notice that without a word, Jesus and his disciples get up and follow him? There's not the slightest hesitation as Matthew tells the story. Jesus just got up and went with the man and his disciples went with him. You see, there's something about Jesus that remains true even when faced with the overpowering finality of death. And that's when the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years interrupted. She wasn't trying to interrupt, of course. She came up behind Jesus and just touched the edge of his clothes as he was heading off with the grieving father. It's common to suggest that this woman's approach to Jesus was skewed by superstition. We know she thought, if only I could touch his garment, I would be saved. She doesn't approach Jesus, nor does she ask for his touch like the ruler had done. She will herself just touch the edge of his tunic on his way through. She won't engage him. Well, after all, in her condition, how could she? But did she really think there was magic in his clothes? Intriguingly, Jesus does not rebuke her for being superstitious. Did you notice that? He felt the touch. He knew what had happened. 
Once again, the more detailed accounts of the other Gospels make that clear. But when he turns around, he simply says, Take courage, daughter. Your faith has saved you. There was, you see, always more going on here than is immediately obvious. And the words Jesus uses bring that out into the open. Sure, the language of salvation Jesus uses here is certainly used of physical healing. And there is no doubt that uh, this woman was seeking to have her physical condition healed, resolved. But in Matthew's Gospel, where from the very beginning Jesus is the one who came to save his people from their sins, that language is much more charged with meaning. She came to Jesus. She trusted that he was the one who held the answer to her need, to all her need. So when Jesus turned around and looked at her, there was no reason to be afraid or embarrassed. Take courage, daughter. Your faith has saved you. And the woman was saved from that hour. Because the constant in our broken world is not the brokenness. It is the power and compassion of Jesus. The next thing uh, we're told is that Jesus arrived at the house of the ruler. If we'd have seen him, no doubt we would have thought it was chaos. The noise, uh, the wailing women, the flutes with their dirges, the crowd milling around, the funerary process had begun. And all of that raises the stakes somewhat. Jesus' words to the crowd outside the door seem absurd. They certainly seem absurd to the crowd. Go away. The girl is not dead but sleeping. Jesus had not yet even been in the house. How could he know? How could he say that? And so, in a dramatic turnaround, those who had been mourning at one moment laugh at him in the next. They ridicule him. She's not really dead. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But if they only knew Jesus was not denying the reality of her death, just the finality of it. Death does not have the last word, not in the presence of Jesus. So they are sent away and Jesus does go into the house and without detail or elaboration, in only just eight Greek words, we are told he took her hand and the girl was raised. It was a hint of what was to come. In Jesus' ministry with the widow of Nain's son and Lazarus, his own resurrection after his crucifixion and the resurrection he will accomplish on the last day. It is something of breathtaking significance when you see it that way. But Matthew, skating over some of the detail of the other accounts of the incident, wants us to notice just one thing. With all the turmoil, the turmoil in the ruler's heart and the turmoil outside in the street, Jesus just took her hand and she was raised. The constant in our broken, heart-rending world is not the brokenness, but his power and compassion. The encounter with the two men who came up to Jesus as he headed away from there might seem like an anticlimax after that. But blindness had its own special significance. 
It's intriguing that there are no miracles of blindness, of blindness being healed, of restoring sight in the Old Testament. No blind people are enabled to see at last. There are other miracles, of course, especially those associated with the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, but not the healing of blindness. Yet Psalm 146 spoke of the Lord sets the prisoners free and opens the eyes of the blind. Isaiah 29 spoke of a day when the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. In a few chapters' time, in Matthew 11, in answer to John the Baptist's question, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Jesus said, go and tell John what you hear and see. And the very first thing on his list is the blind receive their sight. Blindness in the Old Testament and the New often has this special significance and the restoration of sight is a sign that the Messiah has come. Not surprising then is it that uh, these two men call out to Jesus with a messianic title, son of David. They might have been physically blind but in one way they see much more clearly than others what was going on and they were persistent. They enter the house, they follow Jesus inside And in a remarkable parallel to the woman with the flow of blood, Jesus draws attention to their faith. Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And as you have believed, let it be. Their lives had been enveloped in darkness. Like the woman with the flow of blood, they would have been cut off from others, unable to enter the temple and participate fully in the life of God's covenant people. And like her, they knew where the answer lay. They did believe. So again, we're showing that even in the darkness, there is something far more real and unchanging. The power and compassion of the Messiah who had come. Which brings us to the last and briefest encounter in this part of Matthew's Gospel. A man brought by others, presumably because he could not bring himself. He couldn't do what the ruler or the woman or the two blind men were able to do because his inability to communicate was just a symptom of what was really going on for him. He was imprisoned and cut off from others by the cruel activity of a demon who possessed him. Perhaps you've uh, had the experience of someone who is just unable to communicate with the outside world. It is heartrending. I know Though they try to make themselves understood, they can't. And frustration so often leads to despair, made worse sometimes by the attempts of others to speak for them. But that was just the tip of the iceberg for this man. Again, with remarkable economy, Matthew records the result of this encounter. It's as if you don't need to know the details, just that it happened. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. What had imprisoned him was gone. What had been a daily source of frustration, his inability to communicate, was overcome. And he too learnt that even the chaos of evil cannot stand in the presence of Jesus. The constant in our broken world is not the brokenness. It is the power and compassion of Jesus. And that's worth remembering, isn't it? That's worth knowing. 
because it doesn't always look like that from where we stand. Death and its seeming finality can floor us, it can take our breath away. So too chronic disease, disability. So too the relentless opposition and disorder which can only ultimately be sourced to the evil one who has been defeated but who still rails about like a lion seeking whom he may devour. And that's the broken, convulsing world that we live in between the resurrection and the return. But as each of these encounters reminds us, not least by Matthew's characteristic brevity in describing them, none wins in the face of the Messiah who has come. He looked at the woman and said, take courage, daughter, your faith has saved you. He took the hand of the girl and she was raised. As you have believed, let it be, he said to the blind men. And when he had cast out the demon, the mute man spoke. Well, this passage ends with two responses to all that Jesus had done. The remarkable series of healings that had been done in Capernaum and all the area round about. And I take it that we're meant to notice the contrast between them and be challenged about our own response. The crowds, we're told in verse 33, marvelled and said, things like this have never been seen in Israel. This is something new, something astonishingly significant. Against the backdrop of the Old Testament, is that why the term Israel is used here? There is only one conclusion. The Messiah has come. The age of the Messiah has begun. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. That's how Jesus would answer John the Baptist's question. And you cannot ignore it. You cannot remain at arm's length from it. Sooner or later, the turmoil that a convulsing world creates will touch each one of us. And you need to know that the only answer to it, the only sure and certain answer to it, is Jesus. He is the only reliable constant in a broken world. But there is another reaction. You see, it is possible to be confronted with everything that has happened in this chapter and the chapter before and be so determined to refuse him that you'll embrace the most ludicrous attempts to explain it away. You'll grasp at any straw. For the Pharisees did not deny for a minute that he did these things, did they? They did not deny the miracles. They simply refused to accept what they mean. He casts out demons by the prince of demons. We know how he does all this. And what you think is good is really sinister, much more sinister than you ever thought. And so they explain away the exorcism and the healings and the raising of the dead girl and all the rest. 20 centuries on, the exact form of this response may be a little different, but its basic character is the same. I will not rejoice. I will not marvel. I will not follow him. What you think is good and life-giving, I prefer to see as sinister and oppressive. And such opposition will be intense, just as it was intense at this moment in Matthew's Gospel and grew more intense as the story continued. 
For the great divide in our world is not, in the end, between those who are suffering at this moment and those who for just a while sit outside that suffering. It is how you respond to the one who came to end it. So, brothers and sisters, rejoice this morning that Jesus is like this, won't you? Rejoice that he is the one who came to bring an end to the brokenness and disorder and grief of this world. And one day it will be gone forever. Turn your attention again this morning to Jesus, who did these things and who himself bore death in all its terror and strength and then stood victorious on the other side of it. The Messiah who has come and who will return and who is present among his people by his spirit in the interim. For his power and his compassion are the real constants in this world. He is like this. He is always like this. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son and we thank you for your love and compassion shown to us in him far beyond anything we could imagine or hope for. And we pray that you might so fill our horizon with the picture of the Messiah who has come to bring an end to all that opposes you and oppresses us, to know him as the one great constant in a convulsing world, that we have the courage to be his and walk as his disciples. And this we ask in his name. Amen.